Well, we're, we're here this morning to continue in this great journey through the life of Joseph. But what we find as we come to this morning's section of scripture is that we take a radical turn. So just as we've gotten into getting to know who Joseph really was, Moses, by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, takes an entirely different tact and introduces us to some of the darkest sections, really, of the book of Genesis. Some of the most difficult things to talk about. And so we're going to briefly take a look at that. But I want to give you this morning, because of the nature of the passages that we're going to consider, and because I think of where we're at as a body, I want to do something a little bit different in introducing you to the concepts of Genesis 38 and 39. And I want to tell you the end of the story first. I know that that's kind of against the rules and speaking and preaching, but I want you to really understand where we're going this morning, because at the end of the day, I really want you to remember two things, just two. We're going to talk about two whole chapters full of all kinds of amazing truths that we could consider and could ponder and would be well to do at some time, but this morning, I want us to focus just really on two things. So to introduce Genesis, I want you to look at Romans chapter 5. This is kind of the end of the story. Romans chapter 5. You're going to have to wait a while to get to why this is the end of this story as we walk through our text this morning. But here in Romans chapter 5, at the end of the chapter, we find these words beginning in verse 18. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Verse 20, listen to what he says here, Paul writing, Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. That's the story of Genesis 38. That is the story of Genesis 38. It's really unaccountable grace. Grace for no reason, and really... That's the definition of grace. Grace for no reason other than the grace, the character of the God who gives it. So we're going to see that in Genesis chapter 38. So be prepared for unaccountable grace at a time when we would not have extended grace. When we would have said this is the lowest of the low, the worst of the worst, the darkest of the dark times. No grace, no life, no hope. But in that we find grace. And I want to show you that if you go on to Romans chapter 6, we find the second thing I want us to note, because it really tells the story of Genesis 39. Here at the beginning it says, Paul arguing now, since it's true, that where sin abounds, grace abounds far more, then, it, then the argument could be made back. We could say, well then, sin on. Go ahead and sin, because... After all, God is bigger than all my sin, and so I can go ahead and do whatever I want, and God's grace will multiply, right? So, hey, probably the best way to propagate the truth of God and to forward the cause of the gospel is to do lots of sinning, because grace is bigger. Paul argues in the beginning of chapter 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? 
By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, that in, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. That's practical faith. That's faith at the ground level where the experience of the grace of God changes the way that I live. And that is Genesis 39. That's Genesis 39. So, Genesis 38, unaccountable grace. Grace for no reason other than the character of the God who gives it and designed to do exactly what he sovereignly chose to do. Genesis 39, that grace means something to me. And by faith, I take hold of the God of grace and experience what he alone can do in changing me to look like his son so that the real way to advance the gospel, the real way to forward the kingdom of God is by experiencing his transforming power. We're going to see that transforming power at work in the life of Joseph. But first, I want us to pray, and I want us to kind of take a look back at where we've been. So prepare. I'm going to ask you for some input, but first let's pray. Our Father, as we even think about these ideas so vast, so immeasurable, practical faith, unaccountable grace, really they're terms that are so big and ideas that are so enormous that even getting our spiritual arms around them seems overwhelming. Thank you that you've given us an illustration of grace and faith in action in Genesis 38 and 39. We pray that you'd help us to take home the truth that can change us into the likeness of your son. Help us to take that, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, so who can tell me where we're at in the story of Joseph to this point? We've come through chapter 37. What was the chapter 37 about? What was it? Okay, it ended with that. It began with what? So it's selling into slavery, absolutely. That's where we ended. How did the chapter 37 begin? Dreams. Okay, so Joseph has these dreams of what will one day come to pass... But the dreams kind of land him in even bigger trouble than if he'd never had the dreams. He was hated before the dreams. He was more hated after the dreams by his brothers who said, are you kidding? Do you really think that we're going to come and bow down before you? Like, really? For sure. Uh-huh. And they hated him yet the more. So his dreams ended up landing him in slavery through the process we talked about last week. But really, at the end of Genesis chapter 38, 37... We, uh, we didn't even touch on verse 36. It tell, tells the story of him being sold. The Midianites sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, the officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. That's where we landed. That's where we end verse, uh, chapter 37 of the book of Genesis. Joseph is sold into slavery. So it is not a real promising way to begin the next section. I, I'd kind of like to say, so at that point in time, Joseph had a second astonishing dream, and in this dream he was delivered by angelic hosts who took him straight to the throne of power, and all was well ever after. 
kind of the fairy tale ending. It'd be nice to do that, but that's not what happens in Genesis 38, because the road that God had in mind is longer. In fact, he takes us through some really, really dark times. When we think of the promises of God, which are exactly what Joseph experienced in his dreams, we think of the ability to see God's promises and all the things around us at the same time, that we can really understand by context what God is up to. But the fact of the matter is that sometimes, in order to help us really understand his promises, God turns out the lights so that the only thing we have are his promises. You ever been there? where it seemed like everything else went dark. In the darkness, when all other hope has faded away, when my world is confusion and distress and sorrow, when I can't see enough to take one more step, at that point, the Lord is with me. Psalm 23 says, emphasizing that very reality, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for one reason, and only one, because you are with me. Your rod, your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever, because the Lord is with me. But as we step into Genesis 38, we find that the way that the Lord shows up in the story is very different than we anticipate. And so, having been, again, just introduced to Joseph, we find out that Moses, by the Holy Spirit's inspiration, actually takes us to Judah. And I want to tell you just in brief the story this morning. You're familiar with it, I think, many of you. But I want to tell it to you in order to be able to help you remember just how wicked, just how dark, just how lights out the story really was. This is Judah, about three to four years older than Joseph. And we find that after Joseph had been sold into slavery, Judah went down and found a wife. She was named Shua, and, and uh, this wife bore him three children, all sons. The oldest was Ur, and the next was Onan, and the third was Shelah. Three sons born to Judah and his wife, Shua. But at the right time, when Judah thought that it was best, he took a wife for his oldest son, Ur, and he had them married. And we don't know exactly what happened, but we know that Ur's wickedness was so great that God killed him before he had any children. And that brought into play the Leverite custom that the brother next in line should marry the brother's wife. So he should marry this, this girl and bring offspring to his brother. But Onan 
though willing to marry her, was unwilling to be self-sacrificing enough to give up the future that he could see by causing this woman's son to be called by his brother's name. That really was, it was self-centeredness that was at the issue of the problem, and God killed him too. So now we've got Judah, who's his own interesting character in the story. We're going to find out just how interesting a character he is here in chapter 38. We have Judah. We have two of his sons killed by God. He has one left. And he's pretty nervous. I don't know if this woman is good for people. So I think we're just going to not give Sheila, the third son, to her because bad things come about when guys marry her. So we're not going to do that. And so he held back on giving his son, though he'd promised, to Ur's wife. And he just didn't, didn't do it. And then the story changes color and talks about Judah's own particular history. When Judah, after his own wife, Shua, died, goes down to be to a sheep-shearing festival. And so he goes to probably what was a big party, and Tamar, Ur's wife, Onan's wife, Judah's daughter-in-law. I'm working on my genealogy stuff. See, I'm getting relationships down. Yeah. I got to think about it. Notice I paused. So <laughs> his daughter-in-law, Judah's daughter-in-law, says, obviously, Judah's got some other things in mind here. He's not going to give Sheila to me, and therefore, I am not going to be able to have children. I will not be able to, be, uh, to raise up offspring in the tribe. And that was a really big deal. Huge, huge issue. It's hard for us culturally to understand exactly how big an issue that was, but it was a really big issue. And so she does what to us seems really very unthinkable. She goes and dresses like a prostitute and hangs out in the road where Judah's going to pass. And Judah, predictably, takes advantage of the offer. Now, interesting, I mean, quite honestly, some of it just is the insensibility of sin but you know, when Judah decided to take this unknown prostitute up on her offer, he gave to her essentially his signature. He gave her his signet and the cord probably on which that signet was held and his staff, all of which were particular identifiers. These are Judah's. These belong to this one man. He said, I'm going to give these things to you until I can send you the, the little, the goat that I will, the goat kid so that you can, this is going to be your pay for your prostitution. So she, she wanted those things to, and she was pretty savvy in a conniving kind of a way. And, but he was so blind as to give them to her. So he, he gave them to her, and, and several months later, Judah found out that Tamar was pregnant. The story is really dark. I mean, this is, we've talked about the mess of, Judah's, of Joseph's family. Can you fathom how big a mess this is? So now there are children involved. Tamar is going to have them. And Judah, in self-righteous fury, says, bring her out and let her be burned. Obviously, she's played the prostitute. At which point, Tamar produces the signature by the man whose these are, I am pregnant. Well, there's no denying. And Judah comes back with his famous statement, she is more righteous than I. 
That's Genesis 38. Right in the middle of Joseph's story. And so it provides this really dark backdrop against which to see anything else happen in the story because there's really, I mean, how much lower can we get? How much more awful can things be? And so let me just show you real quickly just a few of the highlights of that story I just told you. Uh, so the, the sin of selfish, selfish pragmatism, Onan. We have the captivity of unreasonable fear with the idea that Sheila would somehow be cursed by being connected to this woman, Tamar. We have the ignorance of unrestrained desire, Judah's unbelievable lust, the blindness of covered sin. We have the hypersensitivity of personal guilt. Let, bring her out and let her be burned. That's the backdrop. And so when we come to the story of Joseph back again, Moses, by the Holy Spirit, takes us right back to the story of Joseph after this intermission with Judah, we find that the odds are pretty well stacked against Joseph. Let me, let me show you why. You know the story of Judah, Joseph better than probably even that of Judah, but Joseph was a lot farther from home when this happened. It's easier to do bad things when you're away. He was a lot further away. He was a slave and not a free man. If it's a bad thing for a free man to do something, think of someone whose other rights are curtailed. And now as a slave, he stands really a lesser chance of making a stand against sin. He was notably handsome. That's a good thing, right? I mean, it's what everybody wants to be, but to be quite honest, it can be a real challenge for people who are because they tend to incline to that thing. And you know what Joseph had happen in this story is his handsomeness was used against him to tempt him. We aren't told anything about how Judah looked. I don't know if he was handsome or not. He was the son of another of Jacob's wives. Maybe he wasn't. We don't really know, but we know Joseph was and that his handsomeness was turned as a tool against him by Potiphar's wife. He was approached, not the approacher. He didn't have to go out and uh, solicit a prostitute as Judah did. She was soliciting him. And on top of that, he was not just talked to once. This happened over and over, day after day, day after day, day after day, and he couldn't leave. To add to that, he had reasons that he would maybe want to do evil to his master. Now, we're not told the master was evil, okay? And we aren't told that Joseph had any axe to grind with him in person. In fact, Joseph says that he really, you know, he had no fault with his master. But think about it. You're a, you're a slave. Don't you just hate the idea of at least being a slave? And this guy is the focal point of what you would hate most. He had reason that he might want to do evil to his master purely for the ideology of the thing, and this would be a way that he could do it. And he was outside the heritage of God. You find in 1 Samuel chapter 26, when David is speaking to Saul during one of their interesting encounters as Saul is chasing him and pursuing him like a partridge or a flea, David says, that David says, you have chased me outside the heritage of God. Again, that's a little hard for us to understand culturally, but this is a big deal. David was not inside with the people of God. It would be like saying, you can't be in the body anymore, no longer in the church. 
So he wasn't even having the connection of any fellowship. He had no fellowship. Joseph said he's outside the heritage of God. He does not have the ability to connect with other people who are going to help him, who are going to make it possible for him to kind of link arms and stand together. He doesn't have that. And he's totally alone. So if I were to look at this, I'd say the odds are pretty well stacked against Joseph. The story goes like this. Joseph is in Potiphar's house. He's serving, and we find that he's elevated to a pretty significant position within the household of Potiphar, so much so that Potiphar really doesn't pay any attention to anything that's going on in his household except what he eats. Okay, he really is paying pretty little attention, right? He only is concerned about what he's eating, and it's at that point in time that we get to meet Potiphar's wife, who we're never told her name, probably just as well, who begins to solicit Joseph, this handsome young guy who's, remember, by the way, I didn't even put up there, he's young. I mean, this is, this is a no-go situation, guys. He had everything stacked against him. He's young, too. So he, this handsome young guy in the household, and she says, I want him. And she goes after him day after day after day after day. I would say the chance of victory, zero. The, the likelihood is, is absolutely zero. There's no chance that Joseph is going to win, except for one thing. And it's the one thing that mattered. Look at verse 2 of chapter 39. It says, the Lord was with Joseph, and he became a successful man. And then it says that not just once, but again in verse 3. His master saw that the Lord was with him, with Joseph, and that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. And then again in verse 5, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house for Joseph's sake, and then again in verse 21, but the Lord is with Joseph and showed him steadfast love and gave him favor. And then again in verse 23, the Lord was with Joseph, and whatever he did, the Lord made him to succeed. The one difference, the one key factor, was that God was with Joseph. Now, he couldn't see him, but he was there all the time. So, Joseph plus overwhelming odds stacked against him, plus God, equals a very different outcome. It equals victory. But I have a question for us this morning as we consider these two stories back to back, Judah providing a foil for the success of Joseph, and Joseph providing us one of those examples. You know, we often go to this and say, but look at what he did. Look at what Joseph did. Joseph, he knew what to do. He fled Good point, he did, and he, you know, he, he acted rightly with God, and, but that's not the real story of the story. Those are good things to know, and they're practical ways to apply faith, but they're not the essence of the story. So let me ask you, if God is really with all his children all the time, is he, by the way? Is he with us all the time? Yeah, he's with us all the time. What made the difference for Joseph? Let's say it this way. Why did he stand? Why did he succeed where we so often fail? Was God more with Joseph than he is with you? Is he, was he more with Joseph than he is with me? Then why do I fail when Joseph stood? He had the odds stacked against him. And this is what I want us to remember this morning. Ready? 
it's in a verse that we didn't look at. Look at verse 8. He, Joseph, refused and said to his master's wife, Behold, because of me my master has no concern about anything in the house. He has put everything that he has in my charge. He is not greater in this house than I am, nor has he kept back anything from me except yourself, because you are his wife. Listen carefully. How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Joseph was not simply experiencing the presence of God like some mythical being who we say has this great spirit type of presence. Joseph connected with the God he couldn't see. Could I put it this way? When Joseph looked at that woman day after day, and he couldn't leave, he couldn't just go seek other employment, he couldn't just say, I'm out of here. When he saw her day after day, and she solicited him day after day, flattering him. Boy, I mean, you want to get to a man? Flatter him. Especially if it has to do with his looks. He experienced that day after day, but he didn't just see her. In fact, I'd like to suggest he really didn't look at her at all. He looked right through her to God, who stood just the other side. The difference is that so many times we have, do we have the presence of God with us? Well, yes, God is with me, and I believe he's right here this morning. Am I looking through the people and circumstances, the sorrows and difficulties, the challenges and distresses, all the things that make up my life? Am I looking through them to the God who's right there? All of a sudden it changes the equation, and we find that Joseph stands a chance of victory, not just a chance, but stands in the zone of triumph because he looked beyond the person who stood right there to the God who was just the other side. Joseph did not assume that he was strong enough for the task. I can take it. He didn't figure that he was immune to temptation. He didn't appeal to the possibility that he might not get caught. He didn't inflate his own self-righteousness saying, I really don't need this. What he did do was look past the temptress to God who was right there. It's interesting that this is a great theme in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 11, you find that that's exactly how Moses later, the very author of this book, would stand against the wrath of the king. In Hebrews chapter 11, Moses says, excuse me, it says of Moses, he, Moses, considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. So when Moses looked at Pharaoh, what did he see? The most powerful monarch in the world? He was. But is that what he saw? No. What did he see? He saw God, just the other side of Pharaoh. That's the story of Joseph. How did Joseph stand against temptation? It's the same way that Moses stood against fear. It's the same way that we can stand against all the difficulties, the circumstances of our lives that crowd in upon us. We don't just look at those things and stop. That is coming one step short of actually making connection with who God really is and what he can do for us in transforming us to be like his son.
It's really practical faith. It's where faith gets right down on the ground. We all say, we believe God. We believe in God. We believe that he is the maker of heaven and earth, that he made you and me, that he is the redeemer of mankind, that he sent his only son, the Lord Jesus, to die on the cross, save us from our sin. He's, a, he's a risen from the dead and he's ascended on high. I believe those things. Those are the facts. But do you believe him? Do you believe him? Do you believe that that gospel, that truth, is for you and that it will change you? So when you come to the next difficulty, the next circumstance that challenges you, are you saying, I can recite a small list of important theological details? Can I suggest it's probably not going to get you too far? I'm just saying. It's good to know those things. Please understand, that's the foundation. We must know those things. Those are super important. But if you stop there, you have failed in practical faith to connect to God. Yeah, you, you believe him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we can even quote verse. By the way, James tells us that the demons believe. Do you think they have a pretty good theology? I think probably, at least in areas, because they tremble. We would do better, probably, to be a little more like that in certain ways. They've got a pretty decent theology, at least in the fear of God. But does that somehow put them in connection to God? No, they fail on the level of practical faith. Now, we could get into angelology here and describe the fact that demons can't have practical faith. But, but let me just explain to you that there's, there's the possibility of believing and not experiencing power. It, it really is possible. It's not just possible for only demons. It's possible for you and me to believe the basic facts and never experience the power. What we have in the story of Joseph is a man who knew that God was with him and who connected with him at the point of need. He saw him just the other side of the temptress. Now, I've spent a lot of time thinking about this over a number of years. And can I tell you, that I fail in this every day? Every day. Some small thing comes up and it causes irritation and it ruffles my feathers. Why? Why does it do that to me? Because I'm not seeing God. Temptations come. By the way, I don't need external temptations. I'm really good at creating them in my own mind. So. I don't even have to see anything bad. I don't have to watch a billboard. I don't have to see a bad ad. I don't have to see pornography pop on my phone. I can create it. I'm good at it. It's a sinful good, but I'm very sufficient at being able to build horrible scenarios in my own head. Why? Because I don't really see God in that situation. Really. And... and so the connection point is super important for us. Getting faith practical is not just being able to recite details and facts and knowing things about God. It begins there. It's very important. But until we connect with the actual power of the God who is all those things, we have no power. In Romans chapter 6, as we looked at it, we find Paul uses an interesting word. In the King James it says, reckon Ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ the Lord. In the ESV, which I'm using this morning, it says, consider yourselves dead to sin. Can we talk about what that actually means? 
to reckon or to consider is to be able to take the truth and to put it into reality. To say, I believe that that's true of God. And in this case, Paul is saying, true of you. Are you dead to sin? Let's just ask. Are you dead to sin? It doesn't feel like it, right? But what does Paul say? Yes, you are. You are dead to sin. Okay? So if you are dead to sin, and if, by the way, you're also alive to God, he says, then act like it. See God on just the other side. Recognize that God himself is the one to whom you're connecting and the only way that you'll ever experience the power to actually know change. I can't really say that I understand all that you're experiencing in terms of personal temptations and difficulties and trials. I know some of them. But I can say that your only hope is the hope that Joseph had. The odds were stacked against him. There was no hope of him succeeding in himself. There wasn't even hope of him succeeding knowing all the right facts about God. There was only hope in him connecting to God himself. To him seeing just the other side of the temptress. The God who held him up. Who sustained him when he was all alone. In his own needs and passions. In his own loss and difficulty and distress. Seeing God made the difference for Joseph. It's interesting that in the explanation of Joseph's understanding of God in Genesis chapter 39, we might say, well, he did that because he was really terrified of God. And he was just waiting for God on the other side to smack him if he did the wrong thing. But is that what we're actually told about his theology in Genesis 39? If I could click back through the passages again, I would show you that every time he talks about God, that God is talked about in this passage, it is for blessing. He wasn't just waiting for the other shoe to fall. It's like, sure enough, God's going to get me if I do the wrong thing. No, he was looking at the God who loved him, at the God whose mercy and grace were more than reason enough to stand with him when the temptation was the strongest. God with Joseph, in his experience, meant watchful care. It meant provision and protection in the most difficult circumstances. It meant fellowship and excruciating loneliness. It meant joy and suffering. It meant comfort and sorrow. Polycarp, a father of the church, disciple of the Apostle John, was martyr for the early church. He lived from the 60s to about 155 when he was, well, they attempted to burn him at the stake in the amphitheater. And Polycarp uh, was 86 when he died. He was an old man. After a whole drama that led him to the arena, the proconsul said to him, reproach Christ and I will set you free. Polycarp said, four score and six years, 86, have I served him and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior. Really, that's the historic Christian faith. It's when we affirm, when we personally affirm that God is who he said he is, that he will do what he said he will do in my circumstances, as dark as they may be, in my temptations, as difficult and overwhelming as they are to me. And so we join the ranks of those like Joseph who've gone before us. We link our arms with brothers and sisters in Christ through the centuries. Really, this was the cry of the Reformation. 500 years ago, 
on October 31st, when Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the castle door, church door in Wittenberg, and the people began to see the light that had been hidden for years. The just shall live by faith. And this is what he said. Luther says, faith is a living, bold trust in God's grace, so certain of God's favor that it would risk death a thousand times trusting him. Trusting in grace, seeing God as he really is. Trusting grace. But you know, I guess I left out a part. I told you that chapter 38 was a story of unaccountable grace, but I didn't tell you. How? I just told you it was really dark. Let me read the end of it to you. Verse 27, chapter 38. When the time of her, Tamar's labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand, and the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach have you made for yourself? Therefore his name was called Perez. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. Isn't that a great story of grace? Oh, I didn't tell you why. Look at Matthew, chapter 1. I can't stay away from genealogies. Matthew chapter 1, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, verse 1, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of, wait a minute, this should come through the line of Shelah, right? Judah the father of Perez. And Zerah by Tamar and Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David, who was the father of the father of the father of his greater son, the Lord Jesus. So Jesus is actually descended from the line of Perez, this one who through incestuous relationship of Judah, through Judah's failure, became an important part of the history. It's a really dark foil to the victory of Joseph, but it's also a really important thing to remember that God can take our past no matter how dark it is. And make it to be a testimony of grace. You say, well, I'm not a Joseph. I haven't stood. God's grace really is richer and redder than any crimson past. I, I don't know what you have in your past. I don't know what things you've failed in. But can I just tell you, the unaccountable grace is sufficient. That God can actually reach you with whatever you've done. And he can make your story from here forward a story of practical faith in unaccountable grace in the invisible God. Later in church history, we are introduced to a man by the name of Hugh Latimer. I want to just tell you briefly his story so that we can grasp how this plays out. 
Hugh Latimer was a Cambridge scholar in the 1500s, shortly after Martin Luther, but in England. And Latimer was to preach before the immoral monarch Henry VIII. And he knew he'd take his life in his hands to do it. So he told the truth anyway, and he denounced the king from the pulpit. And he denounced all his courtiers. The king was outraged and demanded that he retract his statements the next Sunday. If he took his life in his hands the first Sunday, this was certainly the time to now think twice before you say something. A week later, Latimer rose to the pulpit, he announced his scripture, and then after a pause, he gave a message to himself. He spoke to himself in front of the congregation and the king, and this is what he said. Hugh Latimer, dost thou know before whom thou art this day to speak? To the high and mighty monarch, the king's most excellent majesty, who can take away thy life if thou offendest. Therefore take heed that thou speakest not a word that may displease. And then, consider well, Hugh, Dost thou not know from whence comest thou? Upon whose message thou art sent? Even by the great and mighty God, who is all present, and who beholds all your ways, and who is able to cast your soul into hell. Therefore, take care. Take care that thou deliverest thy message faithfully. He proceeded to preach more passionately than he had the previous Sunday. Amazingly, King Henry VIII did not kill him. And instead, for some remarkable reason that God alone knows, responded, Blessed be God, I have so honest a servant. But that didn't end the story of Hugh Latimer. And it was under... Bloody Mary, that he was arrested and tried for treason and sentenced to death. He and Nicholas Ridley still had a chance. And as they stood at the stake, Hugh Latimer exhorted his friend with these words. as they prepared to light the fire that would consume their bodies. We trust, we shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England, as I trust, shall never, shall never be put out. Seeing God doesn't bypass temptation. You don't get a shortcut on grief, or you don't get a chance to really eliminate sorrow. 
Seeing God doesn't mean that we don't, that we always understand the nature of what God is doing. I get it. Yeah, I see. I understand how God is working all these things out for my good. That's not what it means. But it does mean that we trust. And when we don't understand, when we don't comprehend, and that we experience his triumph through him who loves us. Two things to remember. Do you remember what they are? God is in the business of using even sin to manifest his unaccountable grace. And he wants to connect with you in your trial, in your difficulty, in your temptation to sin through practical faith in him. Can you see him in your experience? Can you see him just the other side of your temptation? Can you see him just the other side of your sorrow? And know that this God is doing what's right for you because he loves you. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the testimony of Judah who tells us that no one is too low for the grace of God. And the testimony of Joseph that tells us that no one is in a place too far away to experience his power if we but connect to you by faith. Help us, we pray, to take these realities, to call upon your name, to believe not just that you are God, but that you are our God, the God who wants to act through us, we pray in Jesus' name.